Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We, you know, I asked you to come back on, you know, you know, one, the first episode was wonderful. And we got a good, a lot of good feedback on that, right? But I think, you know, this stuff around methane, which, you know, is, 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 I think this bears more, uh, sort of examination. And I know you uh, saw the same little video that the uh, farm, uh, carbon New Zealand co company put out. Uh, and I think it was a fairly nice sort of superficial look at that. And uh, I think it's a yeah. good, you know, just a good thing for the, for the average person to watch. But I, I, you know, I watched and I said, Hey, I've got some questions about this anyway, because I don't understand all the, you know, the different sure. uh, nuances of that. And I know that's right up your alley. And I know that, you know, we, we, I've seen you engaging with a guy named Michael Mann, who's another, who is a climate scientist yeah. and arguably, you know, he's controversial. There's a lot of people that disagree with him, but he's, he's certainly well into that field and, and is considered one of the, one of the leading experts in that field, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And he basically yeah. said that, you know, it's basically not cows, it's, it's fossil fuels, which is what something you, you've said all, all along and that sort of stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see that, that, maybe more and more people are going to start to understand this, but explain. So let's just talk about methane emissions in general. Where do they come from? Where are the, where are the major sources worldwide? And then I want to talk about how they may all not be created equally if, if, if we can, Frank. Yeah. So, so if I may suggest um, a little overview of the different greenhouse gases would be in order, you know, what are they and, how how do they differ from one another and and then let's focus focus in on methane because it's really important to show how they differ and why it's important to understand that um, because that's a nuance that most people try to avoid who <clears throat> have that negative uh, animal agriculture um, uh, filter on yeah, it sounds yeah, it great. Good. I mean, my, my understanding is basically it's basically water, it's 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 carbon dioxide, it's methane, it's nitrous oxide, and then there's all these little you know fluorocarbons, you know chlorofluorocarbons and, and whatnot. But let's talk about that. That'd be great. Yeah. So um, there are numerous greenhouse gases, um, some of some of whom have always been around. Um, for example, water. Water has always been in a um, um, in existence and uh, in a flux that has not really changed in any major way. But uh, what has changed in a major way are gases such as CO2, carbon dioxide, and methane, and nitrous oxide. These three main greenhouse gases um, are those that are most widely being discussed. And um, there are some big differences across these gases. Um, the CO2, the carbon dioxide, and the nitrous oxide, they are what we call long-lived climate pollutants. And the reason why we're calling that is because they, uh, once they are expelled into the atmosphere, 
uh, have a lifespan that's hundreds if not thousands of years, okay? So uh, once we emit them through, let's say, tailpipe emissions from our cars, uh, in the case of CO2, then all of that CO2 stays in the atmosphere. And every time we add new CO2, it's added to it. It's additive. It is a long-lived climate pollutant, CO2, and um, it is referred to as a stock gas, a stock gas. And that simply means every time we emit the stuff, we're adding to the stock of what's already there. Okay, It's not going down, it's going one way and that's up. And the majority of the, for example, CO2 we're concerned about stems from fossil fuel use, the use of oil, coal, and gas that we extract from the, from the ground, and then we burn it, and therefore it now reaches the atmosphere. It's a one-way street from down there, down in the, in the earth, uh, where we extract it from, and into the atmosphere, a one-way street. Now, methane is a very different subject. Methane is what we call a short-lived climate pollutant. And that means, in contrast to CO2 and nitrous oxide, methane lives only 10 years. And uh, where does it come from? Well, uh, methane can come from fossil fuel extraction too, and it does. So when we take oil, coal, and gas out of the ground, then with it comes methane gas. And that's actually a source of methane that's uh, problematic because that's the same kind of one-way street contribution of methane. Um, and that is a growing part of the total. But the livestock methane is different, and here's why it's different. So in particular, in particular, um, ruminant livestock, they eat cellulose, which is uh, contained in grass and legumes. They eat that, and that's largely human non-edible, uh, non-edible human food. Um, or I should say it's non-human edible food. Um, and they eat it and then they uh, partly release some of the carbon that was contained in that grass. Uh, they release it as CO2 throughout respiration and, and that's where the concern comes from, uh, methane. But that methane, um, if the herds that emit that methane remain constant if we're not increasing herd sizes but if we remain constant herds then we are not adding additional methane and the reason for this is that the methane that we produce from livestock is equal in size as the methane that's destroyed and now how is it destroyed so methane as i just told you is a short-lived climate pollutant and there is a process in the atmosphere that destroys it, and it's called oxidation. More precisely, hydroxyoxidation. There are these so-called hydroxy radicals in the air, and when they combine with, with methane, then they take one hydrogen away from the methane and convert the methane into CO2. And what's really interesting is, if you look at the global methane budget, then you will find that globally, we are producing 560, 560 teragrams of methane to the atmosphere annually, 560. But during the same period of time, 
that we produce 560 teragrams, we also see destruction and sequestration of methane at a total amount of 550 teragrams. So we're producing 560, but we are destroying uh, and sequestering 550. And what I find just mind-boggling is that the world keeps talking about the emissions of methane, but not about the destruction and sequestration, which occurs at almost the same rate. That's like going to the bank and you suggest to your banker to please only look at the positive part of the balance sheet, your income, and please disregard your expenses, the outgoing uh, posts. And of course, every banker would, would laugh you out of the branch. But this is precisely what many people do today who want to critique particularly livestock as one of the worst offenders for greenhouse gases. They look at only the emission portion, but they do not look at the other side of the balance sheet, the destruction and sequestration. Hey, Frank, let me, because, and I, and I certainly understand that argument, and, you know, I, I would assume people at the, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Control, the IPC, IPCC, would probably have some insight in this stuff and why, why maybe they, they've chosen to ignore it or not. I'm not sure, or, you know, maybe they're, they're starting to, get to realize this stuff. But explain to me, because my understanding is when methane, you know, reacts with that hydroxyl radical, uh, it is converted back into carbon dioxide, you know, which, you know, is what you said is a long-lived greenhouse gas. And we also know that you and I and every animal on the planet exhales carbon dioxide. And there's, there, there's this, you know, we learn, I learned this in grade school that, you know, you breathe it out, you breathe out the carbon dioxide, the plants, you respire it, and, the, and then they, in turn, will release oxygen. We know that those, those plants would, would respire the CO2, I mean, would respire that regardless of whether we're doing it or not. So it, it, it's emitted one way or the other. The carbon dioxide either comes out through the plants or comes out through our mouths is what I'm understanding. But why is it that carbon dioxide that you and I produce as, as animals and other animals produce that can go up into the atmosphere it isn't considered this long-lasting CO2 like stuff from the tailpipes or stuff from you know uh, industry and other things. How does that work? Well, it's a great question. So, uh, as I said earlier, if you produce CO2 by driving a car, then that's the one-way street kind of process because what comes from fossil fuels, where it was stored for hundreds of millions of years, is now being released in a very short time period and added to the atmosphere. However, the CO2 that we release by breathing or animals release through breathing or that plants kind of cycle through during photosynthesis, that carbon is short, a short-cycled one. Not that the CO2 uh, is different, it's the same CO2, but um, if you think of what happens in the biogenic um, cycles, it is the following. The plants, all plants take on oxygen and they, sorry, all plants take on CO2 and, uh, and then give off oxygen. Um, if animals such as ruminant animals now eat those plants, then the carbon that's contained in the plants will be expelled during respiration. So what the, what the plant had assimilated or sequestered is now being expelled during respiration once we or once animals eat it. So that's a short-lived cycle. It's a short carbon cycle, so to say. Okay, so the plants take it on, 
and then the animals give it off. But net zero carbon is added. Okay, so that's why no no reasonable scientist would ever consider respiration of carbon as uh, any contribution to our carbon stock. Uh, it's it's totally different that way, and that even extends into the carbon that then goes the methane route, because while it's true that those ruminant animals produce methane from the previously ingested carbon that came from plants, that methane is then converted into CO2, and then it goes the same circle again, the same cycle again of um, being broken down into CO2, and then the plants gobble up the CO2 and give off oxygen and so on. So it's a much shorter cycle than anything else we see in the entire climate uh, uh, discussion. Coming back to your initial question of IPCC, the IPCC back in 1990 actually um, used this um, matrix of global warming potential to compare these different gases, CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, and others. And they had a bunch of footnotes underneath their tables warning users to not just look at the simplified what's called global warming potential, but also consider lifespan of these gases and other subtleties that really are not subtleties, that are very important. But public policymakers took the emission conversion factors and uh, ran with it because it was simple. And that is a concept that can be very dangerous if you don't understand the subtleties. Frank, is there, you know, there's, there's lots of talks about methane mitigation in cattle, you know, different things that might be, you know, done to change their feed or, or even, you know, with breeding and stuff like that. Does that still make sense to try to do that? I mean, based on what we know about methane, maybe not even contributing really anything to, to global warming, you know, at all. I mean, what are your thoughts on feeding cattle seaweed and, you know, other things that have been talked about for, for mitigating methane? Okay, so here comes something really important. It's not true that methane doesn't matter at all. In fact, it really matters, and methane has a strong impact. That's the other part of the story. So while methane has a short lifespan, and while it is destroyed almost at the same rate it's produced, um, a reduction of methane, a reduction of methane, can have counteracting impacts on uh, the emissions of fossil fuel-related greenhouse gases. Now, that will probably confuse the heck out of people, but it is very important to mention. Uh, colleagues from Oxford University in Britain, uh, her name is Michelle Kane, C-A-I-N, recently wrote a blog, and um, she and her colleagues also uh, published uh, significant papers in the journal Nature and others, uh, in which they describe uh, what I'm about to say. So if you need more details, you can get those easily. Um, when livestock herds are constant, when they don't increase over time, globally or nationally, then we are not adding additional methane to the atmosphere. Constant herds equal constant methane. Constant methane equals constant global warming effects of that methane. So if we don't add new methane, we don't adding, we're not adding additional warming impact. But, and now comes the, now comes the interesting part. 
if we reduce methane, for example, by using a technology that reduces enteric uh, methane production from ruminants, or by producing less methane from manure, if we reduce methane by 10%, by 20%, 30%, then we are inducing global cooling and hereby counteract CO2 emissions, for example, from fossil fuel burning. So how does that work? Um, generally, just think of this whole greenhouse gas um, process or the global warming process as one where solar radiation is um, hitting the surface of the Earth. Normally, it would be radiating back into space. It would be reflected off the surface of the Earth, radiating back into space if there weren't these greenhouse gases, CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, and others. And when that solar radiation is now reflected back, and normally, as I said, it would go back into space, if it wouldn't hit those greenhouse gases, then that radiation would go straight back into space and not really contribute to a warming impact. So if we now reduce methane, let's say by 10% or 20%, then these molecules that would normally be there and absorb the heat from the sun are now no longer there. And therefore the radiation can go back into space. And that means global cooling, counteracting the global warming impacts of fossil fuel derived burning, let's say, of, of oil, coal, and gas. So, I mean, some people will say that it's far easier to give up eating meat than it is to stop driving a car. And so they could use that argument to, uh, you know, say that, you know, okay, well, we, we're not going to mitigate CO2 emissions from the fossil fuel industry. And, and, and the fossil fuel industry probably would be quite happy with that statement. And then, you know, we'll just, we'll just depend upon not eating as much meat. Um, you know, there is a, uh, I, I saw information, you know, I, I think they call it the younger dryas where, you know, we had this huge cooling period and that sort of followed this mass extinction of our megafaunal animals, you know, 15,000 years ago or whenever that, that occurred. Uh, and, and that would line up, you know, we lose all these large grazing ruminant animals and, and then the earth gets really, really cold now significant global cooling also would be a problem for us if, that, if I'm not mistaken. I think, you know, that's when we end up with crops failing and people end up, you know, resorting to eating each other. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Frank? Well, that's not even a, a question. Um, we are not at threat of going through a global cooling um, phase of any magnitude. What we are really confronted with is, um, an increasing amount and a pretty drastically increasing amount of greenhouse gases leading to the opposite, which is warming. And, uh, and that's what we really have to focus on. It's not that uh, any kind of um, strategies that we could deploy that we would induce a global cooling uh, phase of major proportion. That's, that's not in our cards. Okay? We, we really have to worry about how do we counteract the warming impact. And, if you really ask me for what I think the main culprit is globally, I have no doubt that globally the main impact is that we have a unmitigated um, population growth, particularly in developing countries, and that is now taking off in ways that I would have never expected, particularly in Africa, but also in Southeast Asia. We see drastic increases in human population, and uh, that will 
coupled with an increasing amount of people in the middle income world lead to people traveling more and using more fossil fuels in general and so on. If they all do what we do here in the United States in developed countries, then um, then the future would be and I don't blame them because obviously that's what we do. We do like to see other parts of the world and we do like to you know, cool our homes in the summer and heat them in the winter and so on. But uh, it does have impacts. Yeah, you know, I saw a graph not too long ago that was looking at like the the single most influential impacts you as a person can make towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And the number one that they identified is not having a kid. And I, I get that that's kind of a, a no pass for some folks. But you know, when we start getting into this situation that we're finding ourselves now where people are kind of pointing fingers at one another as to like, oh, well, what are you doing to help? And, uh, you know, they see meat on your plate and they, they kind of think right away, like, oh, you're not doing your part. And, you know, I can't help but think to some degree, it's like, well, if we're going to, if we're going to start playing that game, you know, <laughs> we're going to find ourselves in, in a whole lot of arguments because a lot of things we do contribute to that and, and adding more life to the planet is certainly one of them. And it's interesting when you start to parcel that stuff out. Well, uh, it is a, um, very difficult very difficult discussion to have. Um, I, I have two kids myself, and I wouldn't want to be without them for anything. But um, there's no doubt that uh, a lifespan of a person adds considerable amount of atmospheric carbon. That's just the way it is. That's not to say we shouldn't have kids, but um, it is to say that in places like um, in many countries, let's say in Africa, there is still that that um, tradition of having seven, eight, nine, ten kids because that's pretty much the full 1K of that family, okay? Without having all these kids, the parents feel that they have no way of uh, um, of covering their retirement period. And um, I think that particularly in those countries, anything other than population control will lead to devastating impacts to their societies because they will not be able to feed their populations uh, there will be significant stresses on their ecosystems and, in my opinion, also significant potentials for wars and so on because people will go uh, to their neighboring countries and take over what they can because they will run out of resources. You know, that sounds pretty arrogant when a person, uh, you know, a professor someplace in Davis, California says, you know, hey, uh, you know, in the developing world, we need to watch population growth. Um, and I'm aware of how that can sound, but I do not see any um, any alternative really for being for women being empowered in these countries and understanding what it really means to their own, but also to their family um, to have this unrestricted growth um, that will lead to significant reductions of resources they have available. Uh, the different means of of what we can do ourselves in order to reduce carbon impacts are uh, are telling. For example, if you look at the impact of uh, transportation, let's say flying, okay, and compare that to the impact of let's say eating an omnivore diet, then here's what comes out of that. If you were to decide, let's say you were an omnivore today, and you were to decide to become vegan. 
then the difference between the carbon footprint of being an omnivore versus the carbon footprint of being a vegan equates to the same amount of carbon emissions as one transatlantic flight from San Francisco to Frankfurt, Germany. Okay, one flight to Europe equals the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions as the difference between an omnivore diet and a vegan diet over a period of one year. So it's not to say it's nothing, it's something, but I think it's clear that it's pretty small compared to some of the other things that we do, some of the other activities we um, employ uh, day to day that have really drastic impacts on our carbon emissions. Yeah, you know, and that's one thing I've always tried to bring up when I find myself in a discussion with someone about like what food we're eating in terms of global warming is, is like when I think when you when you scratch the surface, especially with some of the some of the information that's even been retracted in the last few years, it, it can be easy to find a stat that says, oh, yeah, eating eating meat does this much damage. But if you dig deep enough and kind of get into it, it, it seems like the majority of the issues with any of these these big operations is the transportation arm like you mentioned earlier and to me i kind of i get a little frustrated i guess when we're, we're arguing over some of these things that are like not necessarily the true target whereas if if everyone it seems like if everyone is if we're going to solve this we need to all put our heads together and, and focus on the thing that is actually driving it which is the transportation and if we do that we can you know find ourselves maybe making progress as opposed to spinning our wheels yeah, I would, I would add that uh, transportation is part of it, but uh, overall it's a larger complex. Think about it this way. About two-thirds of all greenhouse gases in the United States, two-thirds of them are related to fossil fuel use in the broadest sense. And that includes energy production and use, about 30%, 30%. Transportation, about 26-27%. Industry, so production of steel and so on, another 21%. So these three positions alone are three quarters, almost three quarters of all greenhouse gases released in the United States. And just last week, the Environmental Protection Agency put out the estimates for greenhouse gases in the United States. They are publicly available. And uh, they, they summarize as the total impact of agriculture in the United States as being 8.4%. That's all of agriculture. And animal agriculture, according to the EPA, uh, this year is 3.9%. 3.9%, so certainly not nothing, but it is what we need to survive. I mean, people don't really uh, understand or seem to understand what we are discussing here. We are discussing the food that you and I need day to day. And of course it has an environmental footprint. It must have. But let's just be reasonable about um, you know, looking at how the different, the various sectors of society and our behaviors impact uh, our ecosystems. And here, what we eat is a relatively small amount of what our total impacts are. And the amount of fossil fuel we use drastically impacts that. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Unamate by a brand named Unicity. This sponsor is unique. It has a personal story behind it. In 2015, I started using the tea Yerba Mate. I liked it for its calm sense of alertness that it provided versus kind of the more jittery alertness that you could get from uh, more traditional caffeine sources. 
I even used it in 2015 at the end of the year in route to breaking the 100 mile American record at the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. The only hiccup that I have had with using Yerba Mate in training and racing has kind of been a logistical hiccup. It, I usually had to either kind of pre-make the Yerba Mate as like a hot tea or buy it in a can, which a lot of times the cans you would find had been sweetened with sugar and other things. Uh, so I was always kind of on the lookout of trying to maybe make that process a little more efficient. So after interviewing Dr. Ben Bickman for episode 13 of HPO, he had discovered that I was a fan of Yerba Mate in training and races. And uh, he's actually been studying some of the effects of Yerba Mate and connected me with a product called Unamate, which makes kind of an instant single serving package of the tea. With, with these single serving packs, I, I can easily kind of prepare on the fly even during a race or during a training run without having to go through all the kind of logistic steps of preparing the tea ahead of time or bringing a can full of something along with me. And I actually even used it at the Tunnel Hill 100 mile this last fall where I ran the, the fastest recorded 100 mile or on a trail as well as the fastest 100 mile or outright during the year for 2018. Um, so needless to say, I'm behind the product. If you'd like to try it out, please head over to unicity.com forward slash HPO. That's U-N-I-C-I-T-Y dot com forward slash HPO to get $3 off a 7-pack or $10 off a 30-pack of Unamate. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Frank, let me, uh, you know, let me just steer things a little bit because, you know, as also recently we had this Eat Lancet report that came out and, and it's suggesting a diet which I think is not really appropriate for healthy human beings. But one of the things that you pointed out is, you know, when we go back to this global warming potential, and, and I think most scientists in that, in that field would, would agree that the global warming potential of methane is 25 times that of CO2, and yet the Eat Lancet decided to use a much higher number. Can you comment on that and what their motivation might have been to do that? Did you hear that? Did we lose Oh, it? sorry. First, first of all, um, you should, if you don't know what Eat Lancet is, inform yourself what it is. It's basically a um, publication that tries to tell people to change from a more animal-based to a plant-based uh, form of diet, not just in the United States, but globally. Uh, yes, you're right that they have um, described in the text, in the text of their manuscript, that they have used um, a different global warming potential, which is the factor to compare methane and nitrous oxide to CO2. Um, but here's the problem. Eat Lancet is one of the most sloppy pieces of work that I've seen in a long time. You will find when you read it and when you go into detail that there are, I, I myself found a dozen of incorrect references where they say we use formula XYZ and here is uh, the reference to them. And I check the reference, and it's the wrong reference. I go on further down the page, and I find another incorrect reference, and a third incorrect reference, and so on. I found 12 incorrect references. And then I try to do the math that they use to calculate greenhouse gases, and what do I find? I cannot get the numbers. 
And so I look at the text, and in the text, they say that they use the global warming potential GWP20, meaning they used a factor of 20 years' lifespan for uh, methane and nitrous oxide. Now, that can be argued whether that's appropriate, but that's what they say they did. And then when you do the math, you find that this is not what they did. But in fact, they did use for their calculation the global warming potential 100. So what they're describing in their text and what they actually do in their calculation is not the same. It's, it's not the same. I, I must tell you that I'm just amazed how a piece like that made it to one of, one of the most prestigious journals in the world and got published. It is one of the most sloppy pieces of work that I've ever seen. And what I also find amazing is when you look at the Eat Lancet environmental impact categories, such as greenhouse gases, land use, water use, uh, nitrogen use, phosphorus use, and impacts on biodiversity, and then look at how the different diets that they compare from vegan to vegetarian to their own reference diet to the so-called business as usual, which is the diet we currently eat in the world. When you compare all of that, you will find that the different diets that they're comparing are not different with respect to any of those impact categories, those environmental categories, except for, except for greenhouse gases. But on the greenhouse gas side, they've made so many mistakes that it's discredited. So I've, con I've confronted them, I've asked them to clarify why they tell the world their reference diet, which is largely plant-based, should be recommended everywhere and or mandated, by the way, not just recommended. Um, I did not receive a response in a long time, until very recently, when I was told by the science director of Eat Lancet that their recommended diet is indeed not based on environmental considerations, but only, and I quote, on nutritional and health considerations. So they are telling the entire world that their reference diet is the so-called planetary diet to protect planet health and human health. And in private, to me, they say, no, 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 it's not about the environment. It's only about nutrition and health. I've had, I have that in writing from Eat Lancet. And they, for some reason, don't have the gut to tell the public that because their storyline is more interesting. It would be very nice to have that written <laughs> confirmation of their, their, their true bias out there so people can, can, can be aware of this. I mean, that, the GWP20 stuff, Global warming potential 20, isn't that the same error that the folks at Cowspiracy made, the, the same error that they utilize? And if we don't look long term, we, we way overestimate the impact of things like methane. And that's how we got this 51% number out of Cowspiracy. Is there some truth to that? Yes, that's true. And yes, you will see it in writing. Very good. <laughs> hey, yeah, I mean, you know, Frank, if, if they want to say that that diet is designed for the optimum health of, of the population, I, I just, when they, when they show that you can have five times as much sugar as you can have red meat and you can have, you know, seed oils and all these other things way in excess of what you can have, you know, one egg, one egg a week or a fifth of an egg a day or some, something like that. I just, 
it, it, it boggles the mind that that could be considered the, the healthiest diet for humans. You know, I, um, I'm an environmental scientist, and so I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a clinician or so. Um, I find their recommendations, um, I mean, I find them um, kind of laughable, to be honest with you. I mean, they're allowing me to eat seven grams of beef or seven grams of pork. That's not a quarter pounder. That's a quarter ouncer. Okay? So in the future, you can order a quarter ouncer at a drive-thru, uh, if it were according to E. Lanson. And I don't, think that, I don't think that most people will think that's reasonable, okay? And then one and a half, week, one and a half eggs a week uh, is, quite frankly, a joke. If you think about all the stuff that you eat and how much of that contains an egg, I think it's, it's barely impossible. It is impossible to eat what they suggest we should. And it totally conflicts with everything we so choose to eat. I'm not saying that our current diet is super healthy in this country, but I do think that we uh, particularly overeat in things like sugar. Uh, I think we eat way too much sugar in this country. I also think that we eat way too much uh, processed and ultra-processed uh, meals and candies and all of that stuff. And I do think that that leads to metabolic disease. But I have a hard time believing that it is the red meat that makes us sick, uh, when indeed the majority of what people put on their plates has some kind of, uh, of nutritional composition that a dietitian would tell you is not well balanced. Um, so, but I should really limit my comments to that because uh, I am not a nutritionist and I am not a dietitian and I'm not a clinician. But uh, I, I have a hard time um, believing that a diet like the one that they are proposing could be a long-lasting one. You might have seen some of those articles that are out there of people who have tried Eat Lens for a week. And if you, haven't read, if you haven't read them, you should, because they really wake you up to what that would mean and how sustainable, meaning long-lasting that could be. Frank, let me ask you, uh, just back on the topic of methane and, you know, mitigation of CO2, what are the things, because, you know, and, and we've kind of approached on this before, you know, guys out there talk about regenerative grazing or pasturing of the animals. Does that have a potential to also uh, help with, uh, you know, sequestration? I mean, can, can we use that as a, as, as a potential tool? Uh, you know, I mean, there's guys like Alan Saver says we need more ruminant animals grazing in more pastures, basically. What are your thoughts uh, with with that sort of argument, given the fact that you said is if we keep the herd size stable, then then we don't emit as much methane or, or it's, it's not a, it's not going to contribute to any more greater global warming. Um, how do we how do we sort of navigate those different sort of topics? So, first of all, globally, two thirds of all agricultural land is what we call marginal, marginal. And one third of all agricultural land is arable. The marginal land is land that cannot be used to grow crops because the soil quality is not good enough or there's not enough water to uh, sustain the growth of crops. What we do on two thirds of all agricultural land in the world, but also in the United States is we use ruminant livestock, cattle and sheep and, and goats and so forth because they can make use of that non-human edible feed 
such as grass and legumes and so on. And they convert that into highly digestible, highly bioavailable protein. Um, so what we currently do in a country like the United States is the following. We have 90, so 90, 90 million beef cattle in this country. Of the 90 million, all of them are on pasture, except for 15, one five, 15 million who are in feedlots, in cattle feedlots at any one time. The remaining cattle are on pasture. So that's all the cows and all the bulls and all the young stock and so on. They are on pasture. In fact, almost 85% of what beef animals eat in their lifetime is forage on pastures. And it's only 15% of their lifetime diet. That is corn and other feed stuff that is potentially human edible. So first of all, most people don't know what I just said, but that's, that's the official numbers. These are the numbers that you would find if you really care and uh, do some USDA search. Um, does grazing sequester carbon? The answer is undoubtedly yes. And here's what happens. When you, um, when you have livestock, then obviously that livestock will eat the pasture, it will defecate, the, the feces will fall down off the animal and be entrenched in the ground by and through hoof action. What that does when you take animal manure and you entrench it in the ground is you convert dirt into soil. Dirt is just inorganic material, okay? Soil is that inorganic material plus microbial mass and biomass and so on that generates a, a carbon capturing uh, complex. That carbon capture of soils and plants is massive globally, massive. It's a massive sink of greenhouse gases. And the better your soil, the more carbon capturing it is, the more of a sink for greenhouse gases you generate. So I do agree with uh, Dr. Savory that, um, that grazing can greatly, can greatly increase the carbon capture ability of the soils. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, I would probably not agree with the magnitude of that capture uh, that he predicts versus what I predict, but I think that we can offset a lot of the other emissions coming from livestock uh, if we were to optimize the amount of or the type of grazing system used. Frank, you pointed out, you know, the U.S. the U.S. cattle herd is roughly around 90 million. It's been, you know, kind of stable there for many years now. It kind of fluctuates a little bit, but, you know. But if we look at Brazil, has the biggest herd in the world, 220 million. Then China's got, you know, 180, and then uh, I think it's, uh, uh, or, or sorry, uh, India has 180, and then China has 130, and then it's U.S. and then it's Ethiopia. But I asked you one time about the fact that most of the cattle and most of this methane that's being produced is actually being emitted by developing countries, third world countries where, where, where we have, you know, the majority of our cattle when we look at the overall pick, picture. And I saw a, a post that, you know, Dr. Sarah Place put out the other day that, that said that if, you know, if we could bring the rest of the world up to, you know, U.S. efficiency standards, or at least maybe Western efficiency, efficiency standards, uh, we could feed the entire world with about half the number of cattle that we have today uh, including the, the projected 10 billion people that we might have in 2050. Uh, any comments on 
the, the veracity of that. And then how would we go about doing that? How do we get the rest of the world on board? And a lot of people will take issue with the facts that we feed our cattle grain here in the U.S. And so, but we, we can make efficiency gains through breeding, through, uh, you know, better, better, uh, better calving and, you know, health and, and all those other things. So talk about how the rest of the world might go about, you know, improving their efficiency. And, and, and do we have the capacity to do that if, if we decided we wanted to go that way? So it's a loaded question. So first of all, uh, what Dr. Place says, uh, which is that we can produce the same amount of beef as we do today with half the number of animals, sounds like a fictional statement, right? I mean, it's hard to believe, but it is absolutely accurate. I give you an example as to um, why I believe that the statement is correct. Um, back in 1950, we used to have 25 million dairy cows in the United States. In 1950, 25 million dairy cows. Today, we no longer have 25. We have now 9 million dairy cows. So about a third of what we used to have. But with the 9 million dairy cows today, we are producing 60, 60, 60% more milk. And that means that between 1950 and today, we have shrunk the carbon footprint of a glass of milk in this country by two thirds. We have drastically shrunk the number of beef animals between 1970 and today. We have, we have reduced it by 50%, but we are producing the same amount of beef. We have tripled our pork production in the United States without changing inputs. And that all of that cumulatively has drastically shrunk the environmental footprint of our livestock supply chain here in the United States. And what we can observe happening here in the United States, we could now take on the road globally. What you said earlier, which is that developing countries have the relatively highest environmental footprint of livestock, is true if you go, let's say, check IPCC resources, you will find that both on enteric emissions, but also on manure emissions, um, globally, developing countries make up at least 70, if not 80% of total livestock emissions. Now, how could that change? Well, it must change and it can change by, for example, introducing the concept of having veterinarians. A veterinary system can prevent diseases or treat diseases. In a country like India, a lot of those, those very large herds have one thing in common, and that is that they are infested with endoparasites. They have a lot of worms and so on in their guts, and they consume the nutrients, the few nutrients, I might add, that the cows consume. Um, and so instead of those nutrients that the animals ingest, um, going into milk or into meat or something else, they are now going into some parasites. So that's a huge, huge issue in countries like India or in many African countries. Um, the other issue is insufficient nutrition. Those animals really find whatever the little bit of, of grass and so on they, uh, that, that grows between housing units and so on. And it's, uh, it's just not enough to sustain those animals and really have a substantive growth or a substantive production of things such as, such as milk. Um, 
we need much better genetics in in uh, those parts of the world that are very inefficient. That's not to say that we need to introduce Western breeds like Holstein freezing and so on to the rest of the world, but let's optimize to the different locations in the world the type of breeds that we know can deal with the environmental environment and so on the best. Currently, uh, we have marginal breeds all over the world producing the bare minimum, and that leads to enormous size uh, herds. Um, just in the United States alone, I just told you, we now have 9 million dairy cows. And what many people don't know is we have 9.5 million horses in this country. That's how efficient we have become that we now can have fewer milk-producing dairy cows than we have companion animal horses. And, uh, and that just shows it's not meant to deflect off, of, of cows, but it, it's, it's only meant to show how drastically we have shrunk herds here, and we can do the same, we can do the same thing globally. Frank, there's a, you know, other than greenhouse gas emissions via things like methane and CO2, and obviously with the cattle, it's mostly methane, people will talk about deforestation. You know, these, these cattle in Brazil are, are, are destroying the rainforest. Um, we know that, you know, that seems to be a regionalized issue uh, in the United States and in Europe. The forest cover has actually grown back over the last 100 or even 30 years. How do we, what do you, what do you say to people when they say you're destroying the, the greenhouse gas by eating a steak? You know, by me, my eating a steak, am I destroying the rainforest in, in, in Brazil? So first of all, it is a very serious problem, okay? It's a very serious problem. I used to live in Paraguay, so the neighboring country of Brazil for a year, and uh, I witnessed uh, deforestation occurring at large scale. Um, there are political reasons behind it. There are economic reasons behind it. Um, for example, if you are a landowner in Paraguay or in Brazil, and you own a plot of land, let's say 100 acres, of which 80% of forest, then you have to pay tax for that 100 acres every year. Whether there's forest on there or whether there's a soil crop up there, on there, you have to pay tax for that. So these farmers then say to themselves, listen, if I don't have any income of that 80 acres of forest, but I have to pay tax, then I'd be an idiot not to clear cut it and put in soy. Because now I have an income source and now I can pay tax and have an income. So I don't blame the farmer doing it, but I blame the system for allowing that to happen and enabling these kind of situations from, from happening. And, and they do. And, um, and that is a big issue. Now, when you clear cut those rainforests, then what happens most often is that they grow soy there. And that soy oftentimes is exported into countries uh, let's say in the European Union, but also globally in, other, in, in many other places. Most of that soil goes into monogastric animals such as pigs or, uh, or poultry. Um, the amount of feedstuff coming from the Amazon area or other deforested areas into U.S. beef is absolutely minuscule. In fact, not just is that minuscule, um, we only import half of 1% of beef in the United States, consumed in the United States from a country like Brazil. So I can tell you that the amount of beef that we consume here that is 
somehow related to deforestation in uh, the rainforest in Brazil or elsewhere is minuscule in size. It is very small, but the issue itself is significant and it is growing because also the, the current administration in Brazil encourages, encourages uh, further land use change in those, uh, in those forest lands. And that is, that's troubling. Frank, if, uh, Sean, did you have a follow-up on that? Or I don't want to change topics if you had another. Okay. No, go ahead, go ahead, Jack. I, I definitely want to stay on this topic of kind of climate or environmental changes, uh, but I do want to pivot over to this article that caught my attention back in December that NASA released by, I believe it was like Ellen Gray, and it was talking about this uh, small molecule hydroxyl, uh, hydroxyl, a hydroxyl radical, and it was like described as a simple molecule in the atmosphere that kind of acts as a detergent to break down methane and other greenhouse gases. Have you heard of this or do you have any information on that and like what role that may play in the future when it comes to some of this stuff? And does that kind of relate to what you were talking about earlier in the podcast between the difference between uh, emissions from say a ruminant versus from the tailpipe of a vehicle? Yeah. So what this is about is that um, these OH uh, or hydroxyl radicals are um, recycling. They are regenerating. So it's not that they are being used up and then they're gone. And, uh, and here we are now left alone with methane that no longer can be destroyed. But it is a process that continues to happen. And so these hydroxy radicals are being uh, recycled. And so we are not having a decreasing amount of those hydroxy radicals in the atmosphere, but they are pretty stagnant. And that's great news for an industry like animal agriculture, particularly ruminant agriculture, producing methane because what counteracts that methane is uh, being produced in a constant amount. And so uh, the challenge here that we see today on the methane front is that we have increasing methane levels globally, increasing methane levels globally. And for the longest time, we didn't know where that comes from. Now, those people who are in the anti-animal agriculture arena said, well, it must be the cows. But I think most serious scientists would agree that it definitely is not the cows because we are not increasing cow numbers or cattle numbers in general, but we have pretty stagnant numbers, but we have increasing methane. So what we find is that since 2006, those numbers are going up in the United States. And that is exactly the year when we started uh, shell, gas, and oil drilling and extraction. Uh, it happened, it started in 2006. And every time we basically drill into the ground to get the oil or the gas or so out of the ground, vast quantities of that methane comes out. And that's one part of the problem. Another part of the problem is a methane source that we didn't know of, uh, but that was recently discovered also by NASA over West Africa, which is very large quantities of methane gas coming from uh, swamps and, and, and natural areas in the West area, uh, West African and Central African uh, continent. And, uh, and those were sources way higher, way greater than what was in the global inventories before. So we do see increasing amounts of methane, and thank God there are those hydroxy radicals that can that can destroy them. Um, and so this process is very important. 
Frank, I've seen, uh, you know, other studies out of, out of NASA where they, where they looked at isotopic, you know, uh, examination on those methane molecules, or maybe the carbons on the methane molecules, and they could sort out where they were coming from. Uh, and, you know, they, they pointed to fossil fuel, natural, natural, natural gas harvest, rice fields, and they didn't really point to, to cows as, as seeing these long-lasting methane molecules or, or, or the, the new methane molecules in there. Additionally, I've seen stuff that hydroelectric power generation emits a tremendous amount of methane, which we, we hadn't previously accounted for as well. And so it's kind of like, it's just still an evolving science uh, as to what we're knowing. And like anything, we, we really don't know it all yet. And, and to, to start suggesting radical policies with regard to nutrition, which very much could backfire quite quite heavily, is a bit disturbing to me. Do you can you comment on 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 that sort of stuff as well? Well, it's not my area of research, but uh, I have a colleague at Cornell who uh, has looked into this, and so he has fingerprinted the methane and uh, pretty much ruled out the notion that the methane, uh, the increasing methane, stems from livestock by looking at the chemical fingerprinting of um, of the methane um, in the United States, the majority of increasing methane stems from fossil fuel extraction, and globally, significant amounts do stem from biogenic sources. But those are sources that are not associated with human activity. So, if you have swamps or so releasing a gas, then that is not considered anthropogenic, but biogenic, meaning not associated with human activity, but with natural uh, activities. And so why that number has increased, I don't know. But what I read about West and Central Africa the other day was truly staggering because for the first time, they actually took uh, you know, special surveillance planes uh, over the African continent and they found very large amounts of methane being released. Now, why that is, whether that's some kind of a feedback mechanism to overall um, climate change or so, I don't know. But what I do know is that the amounts that they have published were staggering. Um, so, yes, there are people who study that. And um, we do see changes in certain sources. We do not see the fingerprint of that methane derived from livestock as being one of them. I, I'm seeing it. You know, and we've got politicians that are now sort of, you know, this new Green Deal platform type of thing that is being talked about. And some people are saying that if we do not do something drastic by the year 2030, so 12 or I guess 11 years from now, uh, the world's going to end or, or something along those lines. Um, and and but, but, but you go back and you say that, you know, serious scientists are not suggesting that cattle are the main problem. Who are the people that are doing this, and, and, and why aren't the serious scientists getting up there and saying, wait a minute, let's, let's be more circumspect about this? What's going on with that? Where are, the, where are the serious scientists at? Well, if you go to those meetings like the COP23, COP24 meeting or so, you will find hundreds, if not thousands, of scientists discussing the main culprit of climate change. And they will make no mistake in saying what the main culprit the main human cause culprit is, and that is the use of fossil fuel. The use of fossil fuel is clearly the main source of human caused greenhouse gases. The problem is that people with a very strong uh, anti-animal agenda have hijacked that topic 
And they are out there in public saying, no, no, it's not fossil fuel. Forget fossil fuel. It is, and now I cite, farting cows. And I have to tell you, I'm so tired of that because while it might sound cute or funny to some, making such an important topic into something so ridiculous ridicules the entire discussion and makes it sound as if we either don't have to deal with this topic or, you know, uh, let's just focus on this one source and relax on all the others. And that is absolutely counterproductive. And it leads us on a wrong and dangerous path for solutions, namely suggesting that all we need to do is change what we eat and kind of relax on all the other stuff we do. And that is exactly what got us into trouble. So we need to stop it. I recently t uh, tweeted to the congresswoman you are referring to uh, who talked about farting cows and that that is one of the things that we need to change, getting rid of them mainly. Um, and I told her that um, I understand her concerns about global warming and climate change and greenhouse gases. And I referred her to what produces two thirds of all of these greenhouse gases. Um, but I also told her that I don't think that we should make fun of this topic by depicting, uh, you know, farting cows and so forth, because it leads us to that wrong path of, uh, of for solutions. And I was pleased to see that two hours after I interacted with her, all mentioning of farting cows or others uh, were uh, erased from all of her social media output. And so I think that when we hear things, when we see things, that's obviously blatantly wrong. Uh, we have to be respectful and polite, yet uh, not get tired to rectifying things that are obviously misstating the fact. Yeah, I've got to work on the respectful and polite part there, Frank. <laughs> 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 but, I, but, I, but I mean, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, this is a very serious topic. And so, you know, I mean, some people are going to choose to eat and not eat meat. And I think I'm fully supportive of their, their, their right to do that, particularly as an adult. But many of us won't. I, I certainly won't. I'm obviously in the opposite direction. But what, you know, what can we realistically do? I mean, you know, with regard to fossil fuels, I mean, what are, what are the realistic solutions outside of not eating cows uh, that, 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 that the normal person can do? Or what can we do as a government to mitigate this fossil fuel stuff? Is what, what, what's, what's, what's a practical solution that, that's actually doable? Well, just think about all the different places that uh, receive fossil fuels, okay, oil, coal, and gas. What do we need oil, coal, and gas for? We need oil, coal, and gas to get from A to B. So transportation is clearly one major source. Then we need oil, coal, and gas for industries when we produce steel or when we produce any good, really. Uh, we burn energy, and for that, we need fossil fuels. Um, then in order to make power, power that we all consume, um, fossil fuel-derived power is about a third of our total carbon footprint. So what can be done to counteract that? And I know some people will now roll their eyes, but that's okay. Um, we will have to, as soon as we can, reduce our dependence on fossil fuel and change some of that more to a renewable portfolio. Now you will say, well, can that really be done? And no, it cannot be done and you know, don't believe it. Well, I'm originally from Germany and I can tell you a country like Germany is very highly industrialized. Okay, there's more manufacturing industry in Germany than in most other industrialized countries in the world today. 
They produce anything from cars to machines to uh, subways and so forth. But they have managed to be 40% on renewables now. And that's, you know, Germany. Germany is not California with all that sunshine. But they still have managed to get 40% of their power portfolio to be renewable. And they have done this through wind and solar and, and bioenergy and so on. If they can do it, we can do it. And not just can we do it, we should do it. I think that our reliance on fossil fuel is our biggest issue here in our country. And um, it is something that should be changed and can be changed. Our reliance on individual transportation, uh, just, just look around you when you drive on an interstate. I don't know where you live, but I live in California. When I drive to San Francisco or to Los Angeles or so, the vast majority of people drive cars single occupancy. The vast majority. In fact, if you have two people, two passengers in your car, you can drive the carpool lane. And there are a few people on the carpool lane because everybody has a car that's driven single occupancy. We basically don't have mass transport in this country. And that's ridiculous. Why don't we? We should. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, Sorry, Frank. I'm, I'm, so I'm putting solar panels on my house, so, so I'm absolved. I can eat all the meat I want. <laughs> well, you know, you're making, you're making a joke of that. But let me tell you this. I did the same thing a few years ago. And now not just is my house off the grid, but my car is off too. I don't have to go to a gas station anymore because there's the sun up there that fuels both. And to me, that is a beautiful thing. I think it is a beautiful thing that I can capture the power of the sun to become off the grid uh, for my house and my power use and my, my transportation. I think that's a beautiful thing. And of course, I'm more privileged than most. I understand that, uh, you know, but I think that this is the direction we can go to. I think, you know, the, the, the fact that you're pointing out you have privilege, but I mean, that's really, you know, to go vegan is a privilege as well. I mean, anybody that's contemplating a vegan diet is by definition privileged. I mean, most of the people in the world that eat a plant-based diet do so basically out of desperation. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the fact of the matter. It's, 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 it's the privileged people that can even afford to discuss that. Um, but uh, yeah, what was it, I forgot what I was going to say. Zach, do you have anything? Uh, just to add, I guess, you know, it, it, I think there is definitely some movement along those lines. I actually got a notification in, in the mail the other day from our energy company here in Phoenix saying that they'll actually come out and put their solar panels on your roof if you fit a certain criteria of like direct sunlight. And obviously in Phoenix here, we're probably, if not the best city for sun retention for energy, uh, you know, it's it, hopefully that can maybe offset some of that, like ability to be able to afford solar panels if some of these power companies start uh, seeing that they can kind of angle that themselves and, and re not rent them out to you, but set them up on your house for you to use. Uh, and then, then maybe the person owning the house won't have to try to offset that price point. Hey, Frank, yeah, I, I agree I, with you. I, I just realized one last topic, and I know, I know we're going to be respectful for your time. One last topic, and, I, and we kind of touched on this before, but I think it's something, you know, we've got this, uh, looming technology that's assumedly going to get better with time with regard to lab-grown cell-cultured quote-unquote meat product. Um, cows currently operate on solar power. You know, again, again, we, we, they emit methane and, and we've talked about the fact that methane is basically recycled. But how, 
how are they going to fuel this lab-grown stuff? And where is the energy going to come from? And what is that carbon footprint going to look like with regard to CO2 versus methane? Do we have any ideas or insights on that? Or what are your thoughts in general about the lab-grown meat? I know you're not a fan of it, but I mean, any more insight on that? Well, I mean, if there's one thing in the world I'm really critical of, it is that topic, okay? I, I do understand the plant-based alternatives to meat and so on and how they are made, and uh, I have my opinion on that as well. But the cell-based or so-called lab-grown meat alternatives uh, are kind of, in my opinion, um, ridiculous because, first of all, how do they start? They start with stem cells that are taken out of a um a bovine fetus okay so in the packing plant they are taking out a fetus an unborn fetus of a cow and then they're taking from that unborn fetus stem cells as the growth um as the original you know cells basically for that cell-based uh, meat alternative and so they are now putting that into a medium that is uh, rich in essential amino acids and so on. You have to feed those stem cells, all the things that you have to feed an animal um, for those cells to grow. And they multiply and they multiply and they multiply until that, that uh, mass gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, they also have to take all the waste products that are produced in that process out. That's, by the way, a, a pretty significant challenge. Um, so, and you can imagine if you have a stem cell that's, uh, supplied with nutrients to grow, uh, in some kind of, uh, growth environment, then you have to keep that environment super clean because if you get a pathogen into that, then you can forget about your culture. So I've had, I've had some people who promised me antibiotics are not a big topic in cell-based meat alternatives. And then I have an equal great number of people who tell me, and they are stem cell biologists, some of them here at UC Davis, who tell me that it's merely impossible to grow these type of cultures without them swimming in a lake or ocean of antibiotics. So I don't know whom to believe, but how do you produce clean, so-called clean meat in any kind of environment uh, without risking pathogens to go through the roof. How is that possible? So I have very little confidence that um, this process can be done in an energy efficient way, in a nutritional responsible way, because you have to feed those things, all those nutrients that you would have to feed an animal cell as well. Um, and then my greatest concern is also around the safety of these, of these foods, namely, uh, what have what is being used in the process of growing them with respect to antibiotics and others that might be way more than what we've ever seen in animal agriculture before. Plus, I have a serious ick factor around this whole thing. Just thinking about where those cells come from and how they are harvested and how they are then grown, I do not want to live a life eating some ultra-processed stuff that some extremists think is the better, more sustainable choice. I don't think it's more sustainable. I think it's, um, I think it is unethical to uh, go that route and eat that way. But no, I don't in general tell people what to eat. I think people need to eat whatever they feel is their, their choice, their, um, their wish. And um, 
I wish that other people wouldn't do that to me either. You know, this is a, I think I, I really want to focus in on this point, but you know, the, the, the food that it requires to grow those cells, you know, right now we talk about upcycling in cows. That is the fact that a cow can spend most of its life eating grass, which you and I certainly can't use for any form of nutrition. And, and then, you know, many, many cows, just, their whole life is on grass. And then the ones that are augmented with, with uh, grain at the end will only use a small amount of that feed relative to, to their entire body weight. Now, if you've got to feed these cells amino acids, I would assume, and, and I assume they're going to want to make it plant-based, so they're going to have to grow some crop that has protein, maybe soybeans, which are probably the most efficient source of amino acids when it comes to plant-based food. So they're going to have to grow all this soy, process it out, you know, you know, extract out the amino acids in great quantities. I mean, this is, this, you know, for every pound of meat you produce, you got you to feed it enough amino acids. And if we're talking millions and millions, billions of pounds, I mean, it's going to be massive amounts of, of monocropped soybeans. Am, am I mistaken in, in, in that thought, Frank? No, you're not mistaken. You have to feed those cells all the stuff that you have to feed an animal cell or a human cell. Okay, they require not just amino acids, essential amino acids, they require vitamins and minerals and the whole thing. Okay, you have to feed all of that to those cells. And then the waste products that come out the other end, you have to get rid of. Uh, and you have to do all of that while keeping those cells healthy and free of pathogens. And that, of course, you can imagine requires significant amounts of energy and input variables and so on. So if people tell you this is the most sustainable way, this is the greener way, this is natural or anything, this is many things but natural, okay? many things but natural. The only situation that I could ever foresee uh, a situation where this kind of process were uh, desirable would be if we were to live on Mars or on the moon, uh, where we can't grow those things, those plants, but where we still need to live uh, if we were to choose to live there. Uh, and then you would have to produce things in these uh, ultra-processed ways. But why would we? If we have a miracle organism on the planet that you can cut loose and it will eat something that's non-human edible, and it requires the sun for that and occasional rain. And that thing being a cow, uh, why would we go the route of doing all this factory uh, farming type process uh, to get us to a similar endpoint? I don't understand that. And I cannot understand why anybody would say that this ultra processing um, way of getting us there would be more sustainable. I think that is just ridiculous to say, and I don't think there's any credibility to that. Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 you know, and, and we see the, the pre-press releases of, of their product and saying it's going to re require 90% less land and 90% less water and 90% less greenhouse gases. I mean, I don't even know where they're getting those numbers from. I mean, it, it's, it's just interesting to me that they're, that they're out there saying this stuff and, and, and more interesting that people are actually sort of behind us and buying into it there's a lot of people that have already bought into that that that, that is being the salvation of our planet which i think is <laughs> sad to see quite honestly i have to tell you this um we tend to knee jerk to this so-called vegan movement that we hear about right people seem to think that there's this enormous movement happening and uh that 
what we eat currently is under attack. And I don't see that at all. I don't see it at all. If you look at how many people who live in a country like ours have a high confidence in our food supply chain and what people make their food buying decisions based on, then the following numbers uh, come out. 100,000 people were ask, asked what they base their food buying decisions on. And of the 100%, 95% 95 said they, when they go to the supermarket, make their food, food buying decisions based on nutrition, taste, price, and brand. Nutrition, taste, price, and brand are the most important considerations for 95% of all consumers. 4% of all consumers, the so-called lifestyle buyers, by things like organic and local and so forth. And then there's 1% of the total that are the so-called fringe. And these fringe consumers, they are the more extremists, okay? They uh, don't want any, uh, let's say, animal-based uh, aspects to their diet, not just do they forego um, meat and milk and eggs, but they also forego all crops, all vegetables and, and, and fruit that have anything to do with pollinators, with bees and so on. They are the ones proposing meat tax and so forth. That's 1%. And some estimates say maybe 2%. And these are the ones who run around with a megaphone and make everybody believe that there's this massive movement going on. And when they say, well, last year we increased by 20%, then I have to tell you, a year ago you were nothing. And now you are still next to nothing that you've grown, you know, 20% because your market share is so small that even a significant increase in percent of your market share that might sound great to you is still next to nothing. So today in the United States, if you look at all beef and all beef alternatives, then the ratio is the following. All beef makes up 99.5% of the total. The beef alternatives make up 0.5%. So I urge people who feel threatened or who feel that we need to you know, wake up to this vegan movement to really look at the data. And the data speaks a very different language. And by the way, I work at a university and I teach thousands of students. And I find it very insightful that most of those who decide to go, let's say, a vegan lifestyle, stay that way for one year. 85% of all vegans stay vegans for one year. And you ask yourself why that is. Something must be missing. Yeah, I yeah mean, in, in my opinion, it's an entire branch of human nutrition. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it is interesting to see that, you know, I had a discussion and it, with with some folks on on Twitter not too long ago, and the topic of the, this topic came up, and one stat that was thrown out there is that there's 1.4 billion people on this planet that are vegetarian, um, and then of those 1.4 billion, like 145 million were that by choice. And I thought that was interesting. It's like, well, when given a choice, humans, just like most other uh, the other primates, they, they find their, their, their human nutrition or their species appropriate nutrition, which just tends to be omnivorous in most cases. So 
it, it seems unreasonable to me uh, that we would overhaul an entire population of seven plus billion people to a, a nutritional approach that's void of that entire branch of animal products. It's not even a question, you know. I mean, the reason why I bring this up is, first of all, I believe that people should have the same right to choose what to eat as they have the right to pray to whatever God they want to or, uh, you know, vote uh, whoever they want to and so on. You know, there are certain freedoms in life and eating, you know, the choice to eat what you so choose is your basic human right. Okay. Nobody can tell you what partner to choose or what God to pray to or what president to vote. Why would that be any different to what you eat? But what really concerns me is that you now have these extremists who actually don't say, well, we should help you make a choice by educating you. But for example, the Eat Lancet folks clearly state that your choice to choose what you want to eat should be limited. And they have a whole list of tools that shall get them where they want to go, including massive meat tax or redirection of subsidies from one type of egg production to another and so forth. So it is not that they want to offer you a choice and they want to give you some advice, but they want to indoctrinate you and they want to impose their beliefs onto, uh, onto your food choices. And that is unethical and that is, in my opinion, uh, a reprehensible step. Frank, I agree 100%. I think it's scary that they're talking about what they're, gonna, what they're willing to do to, to force this diet on people. Um, we have another guest coming up, Molly, Molly Schuyler, who you, you might be interested to know, Frank. She, she's a female that can eat 22 pounds of meat in one sitting. <laughs> she's a world champion competitive eater. So we're going to talk to her about some of the physiology behind that stuff. And I'm sure she would not appreciate her food choices being uh, limited either. But it's wonderful having you on. Keep teaching us because I'm learning a lot from, from watching your activity on social media. I'm glad you're there. I think you're making a positive difference. And hopefully we can we can kind of come to some level of common sense when it's all said and done. But thank you very much, Frank. Let us know where people can find you and, you know, just appreciate you coming on again. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, my Twitter is GHG Guru, GHG and then G-U-R-U. Awesome, folks. Definitely follow uh, Professor Mitloner on Twitter. He is constantly putting out a lot of quality information and articles and things that are doing deep dives into this topic uh, so very much worth that follow. We'll link that to the show notes as well. But thanks a bunch for coming on for round two, Professor Mitloner. I, th I think we would maybe, if you're kind enough, give us a third part at some point down the road. <laughs> of course, I'd be glad to. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.